Welcome to Excel Radio with Dr. Nick Zarowski, where we talk with world-class entrepreneurs, executives, and health experts who have unlocked the secrets to Excel Health and performance. Hi, and welcome to Excel Radio. This is your host and high-performance expert, Dr. Nick Zarowski. In this episode, we discuss how to redirect your thinking and make your goals a reality with Mitch Matthews. Things are changing so quickly in our world. If you don't change and adapt, you'll fall behind. It's absolutely essential to use innovative thinking and create implementable strategies to make your goals a reality. This is why I want you to meet Mitch Matthews. Mitch is a success coach, keynote speaker, best-selling author of the book, Ignite, and the host of the wildly successful podcast, Dream, Think, Do. Mitch works with individuals, teams, and organizations, helping them to redirect their thinking and therefore maximize their creativity and progress. In this episode, we discuss how to ask yourself better questions, giving yourself permission to dream, retraining your brain, promoting a spirit of hopefulness, and crushing worry and stress. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Mitch. Thank you so much, Nick. It's an honor to get to uh, be on the show and also spend a little time with you, buddy. Hey, absolute honor having you here. So tell our audience a little bit what you're doing over there at MitchMatthews.com. Absolutely. So I've got a podcast called Dream, Think, Do, and our whole goal with the podcast is to inspire people to dream bigger, think better, and do more. So when you look at our organization, all all that we do follows, falls under that umbrella. So I do executive coaching um, as well as I train other coaches to be life coaches, business coaches, um, executive coaches, and, and uh, we train coaches literally uh, around the world. Um, uh, and so that's exciting because I believe that that's at the core of, of helping people to get clear on their dreams and, and put a plan in place to go after those things and then actually take massive action to accomplish them. And I love to do that by working with individuals. Uh, but I also have a, kind of a crazy goal of wanting to help launch a million dreams in my lifetime. And as okay. I started to do the math on that, I realized like if it's just me, I can't do that. So I wanted to train up an army of coaches that are out there doing that. And and so uh, we've trained coaches literally from from around the world to not only coach better, but to build a business that's very successful. Uh, plus, I do a lot of speaking and uh, and I get to do that all around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's we have uh, coaching, speaking and online training is really what we're doing over at MitchMatthews.com. Okay, excellent. So, you know, from what I see, you you do for the business professional uh, what I do for their health. So, for instance, you know, for their health, I take their health to the next level. For you, you take their dreams and their their mindset and in the way that they're thinking to the next level. So, absolutely. Are- well, and, and just to clarify too, the dreams thing do I love because it's actually based on the scientific method. So you'd appreciate that. It's you know, it's all about you know, kind of getting clear on what you want to prove or disprove, building an experiment or or kind of hypothesizing on how you think it's going to work, and then to experiment to take action and and you know, see what in fact does work, what doesn't, and then to evaluate and adjust. That's the dream, think, do loop. Uh, But I will say that we have a lot of corporate clients like NASA and Principal Financial Group. We've done work with Disney, all of that. So sometimes in the corporate world, my dream, think, do has to translate into innovate, engage, and deliver. 
Uh, and so, you know, sometimes you have to do a little translation. Um, so, yeah, we do a lot of work with with, uh, you know, in the corporate world to really do inspire, you know, more innovative thinking, uh, you know, those dreams and those bigger goals um, and then building plans that actually work so that people can accomplish those either as an individual or in a team or as an organization. Right. So what are some of the obstacles that these organizations or even individuals face that are stopping them from fulfilling their dreams or being innovative and, and you know, really pushing them to the next level? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things we talk about um, and, and this this plays out, what's what's interesting about, you know, dreaming um, it's so closely tied to innovation. And so, you know, you look at at really how Apple, as an example, uh, approaches innovation. It, it's in a lot of ways the, the same thing that we need to do when we're thinking about our own dreams and goals and trying to inspire ourselves to, uh, you know, think and dream bigger. Uh, but one of the things I always say that that's, that's at the core of all of this is permission. Um, and, and that's something that that's key. It's subtle. Uh, but it's also something that if people don't understand it, it's what tends to hold them back. And and what I mean by that is we need to give ourselves permission to dream. You know, especially you've got a lot of executives, you've got a lot of successful business people that listen to this. And and oftentimes, you know, we can get into that mode of having success. And, and that's a beautiful thing. You know, I know you've got a lot of successful people uh, that listen in. But one of the challenges with success is that, we start to, especially if we start to achieve success over and over, there's a real temptation to then not change anything. You know what I mean? Like right. I think success is is wonderful, but it can also be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I, you know, I've, I've fallen into the same trap of, you know, we've got one of our uh, online training programs that's been wildly successful. You know, a, a seven figure uh, training program, and I realized, oh my gosh. I've fallen into the same trap because we said, all right, don't change anything. It's working, right? right? But that doesn't work because especially in in our evolving world and how quickly things are changing, that if you're not continuing to adapt, um, it can be very problematic. So at the core of that is giving yourself permission to dream. Sometimes it's giving yourself permission to dream uh, or you know take things to the next level. Uh, in the face of a bunch of success, and mm-hmm. and you you know one of the the worries that creeps in for someone like that, and and that boat is oh my gosh, what if I break something? Right. <laughs> what if exactly. I what if I do something that then takes my success and and makes it uh, you know goes down in fiery flames? Right. That's right. that's one of the things. But but at when we start to talk about permission, you know sometimes it's about giving yourself permission to dream again. You know some of our you know the most successful people. Um, got that way after a series of failures, after a series of misses. And so oftentimes when we give ourselves permission to dream, it's it's that giving ourselves permission to dream again. And you see that over and over. You see that with, with Henry Ford, with Steve Jobs, with, with so many people. But I'm guessing people can also relate to that, um, that, that oftentimes it's easy to just start to shut down and not dream anymore. I, mm-hmm. I, it's interesting. I well, actually, you and I both spoke at the same conference. Um, you know, and I loved, I loved what you're doing. I loved your talk, and um, you know, you saw my talk. But it was interesting. After afterwards, probably one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the room approached me, and he's like, "You just totally called me out." And I'm like, "On what?" You know, it's kind of the last person in the room that I, I would have thought. And he's right. like, "He's like, you just outed me because I haven't given myself permission to dream." 
in years. You know, and here he is. I, I know a little bit about this guy, and uh, he's been wildly successful financially, relationship-wise, you know, multiple homes, all of this. And, you know, it'd be easy to think, you know, this is the last person that hasn't given, given himself permission to dream. But right. he's like, you know what? You nailed me because he's like, I started to pull safe. I started to say, I'm not, I'm not tweaking anything. I'm not changing anything. He's like, I just called my wife and we're going to take a trip this weekend, do something totally different. He's like, I'm going to start small, but I'm going to give myself permission to dream again. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. Uh, because I think sometimes we just need to give ourselves that permission. So I think sometimes that that's in the blind spot for a lot of people, but it, it starts with permission. Right. No, I, that's, and that's great. And it's funny because just as you talk, it's like, you got me thinking like, Hey, you know, what, what am I missing out here? Uh, missing out on here. But, um, yeah, I, I see that quite a bit too. You know, it's just people who, you know, they fail at something. So they're so hurt from that, that they like don't dream again, or they don't continue on, uh, uh, uh moving forward and picking up the pieces, you know? Absolutely. Or on the other side of it, they're so freaking successful. They don't want to change a thing, which starts to become a prison cell, as well. And that's, I think that's one of those, there's really kind of that, that continuum and permissions at the heart of all of it. Right. So how do you create this mindset? That's just, you know, it sounds like when you work with people, you help, help them open up their mind and they literally just create this mindset that just, um, you know, it, there's no ceiling to it. So how does sure. one go about creating that mindset? Well, there's a lot, as you know, there's a lot of different strategies that can help to shift mindset. Uh, but one of the things that I found um, that, that makes a big difference for me personally, but with you know the countless clients that I've been able to coach and work with, is really focusing in on the questions we're asking ourselves. And, and it's interesting. I think most people, when, when they ask a question like that, you know, saying, all right, how do I change my mind? How do I you know, shift my mindset? I think a lot of people are anticipating me saying something like affirmations. Mm -hmm. Right. Affirmations, a widely held uh, mindset shifting, uh, you know, concept uh, approach strategy. Uh, but what's interesting about affirmations, I have kind of a love hate uh, uh, relationship with affirmations. Okay. You know, affirmations kind of that uh, I am strong. I am successful. I am wise. I'm a millionaire. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. And, and those kinds of things can be very good. The challenge is, is, as you well know, as you start to dive into the brain science behind affirmations, our brain is incredible in how it's designed. I mean, I marvel at our brain. But one of the things, and I won't use a, a real scientific term, but our brain, one of the things that's absolutely amazing about our brain is our brain is an ultimate truth seeker, okay? And with that, it has an incredible BS monitor, Right. So you can say you can look in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm strong. I am confident. I am great at building relationships. I am a millionaire. Right. right. And that can feel good. It actually can cause a release of endorphins. It can cause a release of, uh, you know, dopamine. And that can be good in the short term. But your brain is constantly looking for truth. It's con continually looking at data and filtering to say, what do I believe? What do I don't believe? What is BS and what is truth? And one of the challenges with affirmations is you say, I am strong, I am confident, I am a millionaire. And your your brain assesses that and goes, BS, 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 right? Not based on the evidence I'm looking at, fella. You know, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And and that's why I think a lot of times people um it it sometimes affirmations can be a little bit like sugar. They feel good initially, but then there's a crash afterwards. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that BS meter kicks in and goes, 
I'm calling it not true. Right. Right. So I find that affirmations can be good. You just have to be really careful with them. It's a little bit like in moderation. It's a good thing. It's like, you know, I had I had a a sugary treat last night with my evening tea. Not a great idea, but it tasted good. You know, once in a while, it's not a bad idea. Right. Um, But what I like to do is I like to be intentional with the questions I ask, because the brain is also I always feel like the brain is also a lot like a search engine. So mm-hmm. if you go to Google and you plug in a good question, you're going to get great results. If you go to Google and plug in a bad question, you're going to get bad results. But the thing that's interesting about our brain is it almost can't help itself. If you give it a good question, it will dive into that, right? It will eat that question up. And it, it, where it's different from the affirmation, it will go after an affirmation and say, is this true? Is this not true? But if you give it a good question, it will go after it. And, and almost like be insatiable in being able to tr- find a solution, an answer, all of those things. And I've found that a good question can really help us to look at the world differently, to look at our obstacles differently, uh, to stay away from offense, to really be more innovative. I can give you an example if that'd be helpful. Yeah, that would be great. I was thinking about that because I was like, all right, you're saying a good question. I'm following you here, but there may be people who aren't. So give us some yeah, examples. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give an example of a question that I love to ask myself, and it's it's the result of one of my favorite Olympic stories. Now, you're you're in great shape. You're, you're a, like a super athlete. I, I grew up... <laughs> I grew up a geek, man. I didn't. I didn't really grow up a super athlete by any means. All that stuff. But I, I love. I love stories where the geek makes good. You know what I mean. Right. And one of my favorite, uh, like Olympic athletes, is a guy named Richard Fosbury. And see, Richard Fosbury, if you know his story, a lot of people do. Um, famous high jumper. But when he went out for track in the mid '60s, he was a tall geek, and the coaches looked at him and said, "Woof, Rich." You are made for the high jump, right? Because he was tall, lanky. He was like 6'3 and 110 pounds, something like that. I mean, just total tall geek. But the thing is, is at the time, you needed to be tall and feather thin because at the time you went over the the high jump, you wanted to land on your feet. You wanted to to, uh, use a strategy that allowed you to land on your feet, like, uh, you know, the scissor kick, the high scissor kick or the barrel roll because the key was – you landed on your feet because of what you landed in. On the other side of that bar wasn't a nice cushy mat. It was a big pile of sawdust. Mm-hmm. And so you wanted to land on your feet. Now, what's interesting about Richard Fosbury is that he did those techniques. It worked okay. But then there was a shift that happened in the 60s. It happened in the United States. It happened around the world. And Richard Fosbury took advantage of it. So he started to modify his jump and he started to go over the bar backwards in the way that we are very comfortable with and and see all the time now. But at the time, it was a revolutionary. His coaches didn't like it. In fact, in his autobiography, he said that one of his coaches pulled him to the side and said, Rich, you look like you're having a seizure in the air when you do this. Stop doing it. You're embarrassing the team. But he started to win. And he won at the high school level, went on to win at the collegiate level, won uh, nationals at the collegiate level, won a place on the the track team that went to the Olympics in Mexico City. Mexico, uh, he went to Mexico City and in this stadium, about 50,000 fans. Uh, he went over the bar backwards, was the only one to do it. The, the crowd didn't know how to react. They reacted with a stunned silence, like crickets, because they'd never wow. seen anything like it, right? Second time he goes over, though, 
All of a sudden, he starts to become a crowd favorite. They erupt in this universal allay. People get behind this tall geek doing this weird thing over the bar. And he goes on to not only win the gold, but set a new world record. And no one has ever done the high jump and, and gotten a gold medal since doing any other strategy than what is now called the Fosbury flop. Now, wow. a lot of people know that story, and I love that story. But the story behind the story is what inspires a better question for me, because that that small but significant shift that happened in the in the 60s that happened in the United States happened around the world you probably have already even figured out what it was was that the sawdust went away and they moved in mats now what's interesting is is that that change happened globally but Richard Fosbury was the only one to take advantage of it and i always wondered like why was that like why would that happen and i haven't been able to talk with Richard Fosbury about it but i've been able to talk with some other athletes. Uh, one was one of his contemporaries that almost made that Olympic team. And I got to sit down and talk with him about that that time. And, and there were, a, you know, really one question that I wanted to ask him, but I asked him a couple of other questions first. But I finally got to the question that I wanted to ask. And my question was, you know, here we were, we were under a shade tree. Um, he was getting ready to coach his high school track team, that he, you know, couch, coach and all this, a seasoned athlete, a seasoned high jumper. Oh, that we're sitting under the shade tree and, and I finally get to say, hey, you know, you were one of Richard Fosbury's contemporaries. You were, you know, doing the high jump at the same time. My question is, what did you think the first time you saw the mat? And he responded in a nanosecond. Like he surprised himself. He surprised me. And he, he said very quickly, he said, I hated that mat. Mm hmm. I was shocked, right? And I think he was too. Like it's just that, that that response was so fiery and so visceral and so immediate. I was like, why'd you hate the mat? And he said, I yeah. instantly thought, great, now everybody can do the high jump. Oh, right? Gotcha. Yeah. And so it's funny because at the time I didn't get it. But as I was walking to my car, you know, I let him go, you know, ran out to his track team. And I, I was walking back to my car. I, I was thinking, it, it dawned on me, I wonder how many opportunities I've missed because I was first offended by them. Because mm -hmm. you think about like how many people missed the mat because they first, you know, had the same kind of reaction. Like, great, it's changed. Right. Like, ugh, right? Because yeah. change is offensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But how often are we blinded to the opportunity because we were focused on the wrong thing or because we were instantly offended. So one of the questions that I love to ask myself, one of the questions I love to ask the, the, you know, the executives, the entrepreneurs, the globe changers that I work with are one, what are some changes that are happening for you? And two, okay. audaciously, how could you make some of those work for you? Even if you're ticked off by them, how maybe could you make them work for you? Okay. So how could and, you make it like a positive experience that actually How could you make you? it a positive experience? How could you learn from it? Or is there, you know, especially for an entrepreneur, is there an opportunity in that? You know, I was, I was working with, I mentioned I work with a lot of larger corporations and one of the corporations I work with is a large insurance company. And, you know, as you as you know, well know, um, a lot of changes in the old insurance industry oh, the last yeah. couple of years, right? And I mm -hmm. was working with them as some of the biggest changes were starting to come down the pike. And I said, you know, it was funny because the people that hired me to work with this executive team, they were like, hey, just just so you know, people are a little touchy, right? Yeah, people I bet. Yeah. Pride, they're a little tired, all that stuff. And I said, hey, I totally understand. I can only imagine. So I told this story, I, I set it up and said, listen, you guys have got a lot of changes around you. 
how maybe, and I said, I know it's audacious. I know it's crazy, maybe even offensive to ask, but how maybe, you know, what if you gave yourself permission to explore where are there some opportunities in this? And it was really interesting because they, they, I then had them work in groups and just have them, you know, think about it for a little bit. And, and it was interesting because one of the people that came back, you know, was the head of training. And she's like, okay, well, um, is this a safe place? And I was like, absolutely, it's a safe place. And she's like, well, one of the things that we all, you know, realized was all of these changes have been really frustrating, offensive. There's a lot of mystery to them. There's, you know, everybody's frustrated. We're frustrated. Our clients are frustrated. And in that frustration, as we look at this and realize it, we realize that that we brought that frustration to the table, and all of a sudden, you know, we're kind of coming at this, uh, you know, where it's it's almost we're coming at it, at, you know, almost like we're adversaries. Mm-hmm. And she's like, the opportunity I think is to realize this is the greatest opportunity we've ever had to draw close to our clients and say, let's figure this out together. Right. And so they actually shifted. They shifted their training. They shifted a lot of their marketing to instead of it being this is us versus you, all of a sudden everything started to be let's sit on the same side of the table and figure this out together. Mm -hmm. And it had a huge impact, not just even on their marketing, not just on their uh, uh, actual customer retention or those kinds of things, actually on their stress level, um, on their actual relationships inside and out, all of those things. And, you know, so when you think about that, permission is at the heart of that. Permission Mm -hmm. is at the heart of being able to give yourself permission to look at a situation, not from a rainbows and butterflies saying, hey, little camper, everything's going to be okay. Buck up, little buddy. You know, it's not that. But to be able to say, all right, let me let me dig into that. Let's let's look for the opportunities. Uh Uh, And sometimes it is as simple as I'm going to learn from this. We're not going to do this again. Or to be able to say, hey, maybe there's something much bigger in it. But there's also the permission to say, hey, maybe we do need to change. Maybe we do need to do something different. And that doesn't always mean that what you've been doing is wrong or bad um, or it doesn't suck. It just means that sometimes we just by taking another look could make it even more remarkable, take it right. to that next level. So, you know, permission is at the, is at the heart of asking a question like that. Uh, but it's it's sometimes, you know, simple questions like, what could I be grateful for? What could I be grateful for in this moment? You know, gratitude is, you know, kind of the, the, the body's super fruit. It's, it's one right. of those things that, you know, gratitude inspires, uh, you know, that release of endorphins and dopamine and serotonin. Um, you know, it's our body's natural antidepressant. But one of the things that, you know, I encourage my clients to do, not as a, again, just a rainbows, butterflies and harp music plays as you run across a meadow in slow motion kind of thing. It's like, hey, if you really want to inspire more creative thought, more innovation, actually even being able to remember things more, make sure you're asking yourself from time to time, even on a daily basis, sometimes even on an hourly basis, what's something you're grateful for right now? Big or small, what's something you're grateful for? And it's amazing, one, how that can make you feel, but two, what that can do to your thinking. So those are a couple of examples of just simple questions that give your brain something to focus on uh, that tends to drive more positive and, and, you know, more positive thinking, more innovative thinking, but also shifting that mindset over time. Okay. And and that's interesting. So it's, you know, asking better questions is, is one, and then also creating that proper mindset and coming from a state of gratitude, you're saying is just going to skyrocket your results. 
It is. And it's one of those things that you've probably seen a lot of the data that's out there, but like the gratitude, it's, it's amazing from the standpoint, you know, there's more and more now as, as positive psychology has really come on the map in the last two decades. Right. Uh, There's been more and more research to look at things like gratitude. And one of the things that they looked at, uh, was they took a group of people that were identified or self-identified as, as worriers. And they took them through a simple exercise where they had one group, they didn't change a thing, that was a control group. The other group, uh, they basically had them list three to five things they were grateful for on a daily basis. And they did blood tests, which I'm like, you're, you're going to sign up for a test or you're going to sign up for you know research that you're a worrier and you're going to get blood tests. Awesome. I don't like needles, man. That's crazy, right? Right. Uh, but they, they started to do blood tests and they looked at things like serotonin and dopamine in the, in the yeah. blood system. And they were actually able to see just by doing this one exercise every morning, the simple act of writing five, three to five things down that they were grateful for, that actually changed their levels of serotonin and dopamine in at one month, at three months, and at six months. And what I love about this particular study is they actually had them stop the exercise at six months. And at the end of the seventh month, they looked at their blood levels again. They hadn't done the exercise, although they wanted to. They hadn't done the exercise for a month. And at the, se- at the end of the seventh month, they realized those higher levels of serotonin and dopamine, our body's natural antidepressant, had actually stayed at those higher levels, which led the researchers to, one, be surprised, but two, conclude that those people had actually retrained their brain to look at the world differently. Wow. And that's, that's, that's nuts. And yeah, the, the research on gratitude and, 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 and coming from that place of uh, gratitude is really, really awesome in, in the changes that it actually makes at even like a genetic level yeah. you know, where it actually changes gene expression and, and how it actually affects, uh, even, you know, people who are coming from a state of stress and depression and worry, how those people experience disease and, and, you know, so many more terrible things in their life. Yeah. And so oh, absolutely. Well, and that's the thing I figure you can geek out on that way more than I can. I love it. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's all very interesting. And, but one of the things, so we're talking about like how to really get out of that lull and how to, you know, start creating this, you know, mindset that is limitless. However, you know, how does somebody just stay in that state? You know, is it, is it, you know, waking up every morning and having a, you know, a list of, you know, exercises that you go through with your mind? Like, what do you do to help people stay in that state of, um, you know, uh, just, uh, energized for life in, in, in the things around you. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's things like that. I, I, one of the things that I try to do every morning is I do that exercise, that three to five things that, uh, I'm grateful for. And here's the thing, like I'm a journal guy. I like to take notes. I've got a journal with me all the time and I'm a little old school. I'd be, you know, smart to do it via Evernote. Cause then I could, you know, search those things and all that stuff. But I, I like to carry a journal. Uh, but at the same time, I've never been the my dear diary kind of guy. So right. like I see some people and, and, you know, they journal and pages and pages every day of, of things that that just doesn't fly for me. So my my journal entries tend to be more bullet points mm-hmm. than, you know, flowery prose, which nothing against that. That's awesome if people do that. But that's just not me. Right. Um, so that's you know, that's a great thing to actually uh, do every day as well. You know, another thing, you know, to conclude the day to be able to say, all right, uh, uh, you know, what's, what are a few things that I've learned at the end of each day? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful exercise to do as well. You know, one of the things that, that I do with a lot of folks is, it, you know, again, get them thinking about what kind of question 
are they asking themselves? What kind of question are they asking their team? And even having a themed question for the week, I've got a book coming out on worry and, and we're going to talk about, you know, kind of the power of questions, how to really build a good question that will really engage the mind and engage others, you know, but that's another big part of it. But I'd say, you know, the other key aspect of all of this, um, and you know, this isn't the, this isn't as easy as, as, you know, to, to have a journal and a pen and, and kind of do this introspectively each day. That's a good thing. But, um, you know, the, the other component of this is being very intentional uh, about who you're surrounding yourself with. Okay. So as an example, you know, in just a little bit, I've got a phone call with four guys that I connect with and we push each other, you know, it's, it's basically a, you know, a Napoleon Hill esque mastermind and, and we connect every other week. Uh, we push each other, we encourage each other. Um, uh, we're real intentional with this because here's the thing alone, I'm a grumpy old curmudgeon, man. I'm a worried, <laughs> you know, uh, grumpy guy. But it, it, it's that whole thing of choosing and being intentional about who I surround myself with, especially from an inner circle standpoint. You know, I'm I'm wildly blessed to say that I love the clients that I work with. I so appreciate them. Uh, but when you're when you're doing it, when you're you know out there and 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 taking things to that that global level. You're gonna run into some jackweeds, and not everybody's, you know, your personal, you know, uh, oh, taste no. in vodka or whatever. So, you know, there's there's gonna be people that you need to interact with that maybe aren't your favorite people in the world, right? And that's okay because you can do that all day long as long as you've got a core group of people. And mm-hmm. and I've got this mastermind. I'm real intentional about that. I've got another good friend that I meet with every week at Friday morning at 6 a.m. and we meet for coffee. Uh, you know, I've got that with my with my wife and and our two boys. Those kinds of things. So, kind of my inner circle. I am I am just crazy uh, about protecting um, and uh, and then nurturing those relationships because those are the people that uh, help me to stay focused and you know to really keep that that different outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, they encourage me, but they also kick me in the butt if they see that I'm off the track a little bit. Right. And I think this is actually a little bit of a learning lesson for us all being that you're a coach who coaches people who also has a group that, you know, kind of coaches you in a way. And so, you know, it's, it's good for people to have this, uh, group of friends or, you know, business partners or whatever that really can help them keep their mind right and not just because if you're doing it all alone and you're going out there all alone from what I'm getting out of this you're you're most likely going to start you know veering from the path which you ultimately want to be on so yeah you're either going to veer off the path or you're going to stagnate right okay. it's, it's that whole thing and and I think you know that's that's the I think you're exactly right I think sometimes people think uh, you know, they might look at, at my website and go, Oh my gosh, you're in a great mood all the time. It's like, heck no. You know I mean? I have my days too, right? <laughs> Come on and, now. Yeah, exactly. Or, or they'll look at the leader and oftentimes, and, and this might be trite, but it's only trite because it's true. It's so often the leader who leads, encourages, inspires, push, con- con- conjoles, all of those things, right? Um, it's that leader who forgets they also need the very things that are pouring out of them on a daily basis. It's interesting. One of my other favorite questions is to ask, how can we have some fun as we do this? Right. That's not the worst Mm -hmm. thing in the world, like interjecting fun. There's a whole lot of chemicals involved in the brain too, around the fun. Um, and so that's, that's a great, so how can we have some fun as we do different things? And, and there's a lot of different aspects, but I think it's, it's interesting. Leaders are, are amazing at saying, yes, it's good to inject some fun. Yes, we should do that. 
but oftentimes they're the last ones giving themselves permission to have some fun. I've got one of my companies that I work with, uh, we've done a lot of leadership work with them. I, I'm really big on mentorship. So we've really been big on inspiring and infusing uh, more of a mentoring approach with their leadership. And they've got, uh, they're a tech firm and they've got all these just crazy cool game rooms. Mm-hmm. And so we'll talk about this. We'll talk about giving ourselves permission to ask that question. How can I have some fun as I do this, you know, fill in the blank. And it's funny because they'll be like, yeah, that's great. And yes, I'm going to ask my team. And I'm like, all right, just just as just to ch- you know check ourselves here a little bit you guys have these amazing game rooms who's mm-hmm. been in there other than on the day you opened this office yeah how many have been in there in the last year no hands how many have been there you know the last or how many have been in there in on in on any format other than your opening day and it's just I, everybody's like busted and that's not to say that's the only way to do it right but that called them out to say wait you're you're the first ones to try to provide that for somebody else but are you making sure you're giving yourself permission to do the same and so you know that's just another example of a question but it's also important from a mindset perspective to be able to say especially you know leaders entrepreneurs globe changers we're the first ones to give those things to others as gifts but we got to make sure that we're replenishing ourselves as we're doing that right but do you also think that the people the leaders who are not giving themselves permission are possibly showing up in a showing up to work in a way that's not so fun, you know, being more met negative and being um, just, you know, in a bad mood on a daily basis. And then therefore their people are just getting worn out by it. Absolutely. And it's, it's amazing. I just talked with, I just, uh, on my podcast, dream thing do, I just did an, an interview that's going to be going live here soon with a gal named, uh, Dr. Margaret Heffernan. Um, and she's a, a leadership expert from, from England, just an um, incredible thinker. Um, and we were talking about the importance of helpfulness and collaboration within an organization and, and instilling a sense of collaboration and helpfulness, you know, making sure that okay. people are open to collaborating and helping each other and creating an environment where that's safe to do. And one of the things we isolated down to is, is you know, to be able to say, all right, if, if an organization really does want to inspire more collaboration and, and, and a spirit of helpfulness, mm-hmm. what would you say is the single most important way to do that? Is it through some sort of bonus program? Is it through sort, some sort of incentive? Is it, is it, is it you know, double checking those things and making that a part of you know, a person's annual review? And she said, yeah, you know, there's different ways to do that. But she said the single most important and powerful way that a leader can infuse a sense of collaboration and helpfulness is to ask for help. As a leader, it's to ask for help. Okay. And it's, it was like, it was interesting because she said, if a leader does that, then a leader then makes it okay. In, in my language, a leader then gives permission to others to also ask for help. She said, it's, it's actually scary how many, like she's done uh, research into industrial accidents, um, you know, tragedies, uh, you know, oil refinery tragedies, all those things. In almost every case, you could track it back to people actually knowing and seeing and even predicting the tragedy that then ensued, but nobody said anything because the environment wasn't a safe place to for people to actually ask for help. Wow, that's crazy. Right? And so it's one of those things to be able to say, ah, if a leader wants to actually inspire a sense of helpfulness, 
they need to actually be willing to ask for help. And I think it's the same thing from that standpoint to your point is if you want to inspire more of a sense of, of bringing some fun and, and enjoyment, because there's a lot of science to argue that that's a very good ideal from a you know creativity and an innovation standpoint, but also from an engagement and loyalty standpoint, from an employee retention standpoint. There's a lot of science and research that says injecting a little bit of fun is a good idea. It's not a waste of time. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're you know as a leader, if you're wanting to do that, it's giving permission to yourself to have a little fun, to look for ways to have a little fun. So so often if you if you track back any of those things, if if you know you're wanting a more engaged team, you're a leader and you want a more engaged team, the number one factor is to actually be engaged yourself. Okay. If, if you want to infuse more fun and and uh, you know taking an approach of of actually having some fun, if you want to see that in your team, number one thing a leader can do is to actually do it themselves. And if, if you do want to, you know, inspire more helpfulness or collaboration, as a leader, the number one thing to do that, to really infuse that into the DNA of your team, your organization, is to do it yourself. So it's, and at the heart of all of that is permission. You know, you got to give yourself that permission to do that. It starts, it starts there. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's really important, I feel. Um, I, I think that when it comes to the leader, it, 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 whatever bad habits he picks up, the rest of the team picks them up and then it just keeps going from there. And if it's, you know, um, not, not showing up uh, grateful, if it's not showing up with high energy, if it's not showing up with enthusiasm, whatever that is, I feel like it just trickled trickles down through the whole company. And all of a sudden, if the leader creates this poor atmosphere, um, through his, you know, poor, uh, um, mentality, then it just, it just keeps on going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is, you know, as a leader, it's like, oh, that's daunting. But at the same time, I think it, you know, it's, a, it's, it's where the revelation starts is to say, OK, you know, it does start with us. But then also, I think it's also one of those things to be able to say if you if, uh, you know, as a recovering perfectionist, uh, you know, I, I have to be very intentional around that. But I think as a leader, there's there's also the the temptation to feel like if especially if we understand this, that, it, you know, so much of if we want to see it in our team, it starts with us. And so it, it, it's easy to be tempted to go, ugh, I've got to be the perfect leader, mm -hmm. right? Uh, on all fronts, I've got to be, you know, Superman. I've got to have all the skills and all that. It's like, no, actually you don't. But you have to bring, you know, to your point, you have to bring your best game. You have to do it, but also at the same time, own those things, uh, you know, own the day where you feel tired to be able to call yourself out to say, all right, you know, I need some help today or to be able to say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not perfect or I don't have all the answers. You know, one of my favorite, one of the other favorite phrases that I like as far as from the standpoint of giving people, uh, you know, another tool, especially as a leader, you know, I think one of the biggest fears that new leaders have, but even experienced and established leaders have is to be called out on not knowing something. You know, if you're leading a team of salespeople, you know, uh, one thing as I talk with leaders, especially one on one, one of their biggest fears is to be called out in a sales call, not knowing something or to be called out by a rep on, on not knowing how to handle a question on expense reporting or or, you know, goal assessment or any of those things. Or, you know, if you're leading a, a team of, uh, you know, in the medical field to be able to say, oh, gosh, you know, to not have an answer. Um, in, in some ways would then therefore like destroy your credibility on, on, you know, in the eyes of that person or in the eyes of the group. But one of my favorite phrases to be able to equip people with is to be able to say, Hey, I don't know the answer to that, but let's figure it out together. 
Right, that's good. I like that. To be able to say, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. Because what that does is to be able to say, that calls it out. Because if you do, in fact, try to answer the question not knowing the answer, everybody in the room knows it knows that you don't know the answer, right? right? You're <laughs> really good at faking it. But most people get, you know, it's like, nah, the only right. person that is convinced that explanation worked is the person trying to give the explanation. Everybody else in the room is like, nah, I don't believe it. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. But to be able to say, hey, I don't know, but let's figure it out together actually shows one that you're willing to be honest and real in front of the person, but also two that you hold them as capable of being able to have to being able to figure it out together. I agree. I agree. And so, you know, in order to have these dreams and, and, and really be able to think big, one of the things that's important to do is really shut down that stress and worry. Now, you were just saying, you mentioned just a minute ago that uh, you are coming out with a new book on stress and worry. So we all know that this is an issue. So how, what are some good strategies to shut that stress and worry down? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest things we talk about is is being able to understand and, and actually see it coming. You know, so often it what, what's what's offensive as a lifelong I'm a recovering worrier now, right? Um, and uh, I, I I've worried since I was a little kid. I would worry myself sick in elementary school. Um, you know, it, it literally stay home for days, if not weeks, at a time because I'd worried myself so sick. Uh, so you know, kind of being a lifelong worrier. As I started to dig into the research of worry, I found something that was both offensive and freeing in that uh, that we actually learn to worry. That's a learned response. We're not born with that ability. We learn to worry. Now, some people have more of a natural proclivity or more you know, natural bent towards worry. Okay. But we all actually, in fact, learn to worry. And that was first offensive because I didn't remember learning how to worry. It always just felt like a natural thing. It was kind of a cloud hanging over me. It just always felt like it was there. Right. But the, the, so that was offensive, but the freeing aspect of that is whenever you hear that to realize that something has been learned, there's also a freeing aspect to realize that it can be unlearned. Right. And so when it starts, you know, one of the things we talk about that that's powerful is to actually first identify, Oh, there's a temptation to worry. There's an opportunity to worry when you actually identify it like almost being thrown at you, whether it was, you know, something Matt Lauer said on the Today Show this morning, a headline that you saw while you waited for your coffee at Starbucks. It's all those things your brain starts to engage and say, oh, that's a worry. Right. But to be able to identify that and say, yes, that's an opportunity to worry, but I don't actually have to worry. Mm-hmm. And to be able to re-engage and, and replace that thought I with like a that. different thought. And so that it starts with identifying it. And then when we walk through it in, in the book, I also then talk about using questions to redirect that thinking. Because worry, if you boil it down, worry is unproductive creativity. You bet. <laughs> it's it's that, you know, because that's what we do is and if and if you've got any worriers. Uh, you know, in your audience, which, you know, there's, oh, a I guarantee study. it. <laughs> yeah. There's a recent study that said about 82% of all family practice visits have stress related, um, you know, issues. So there's a, there's a lot of people out there, but you know, exactly what I'm talking about yes. that we can create the most horrendous of pictures in our mind. Like I, I live in Des Moines, Iowa, right. And, and we have a business, we've had our own, uh, you know, business for, for, uh, you know, 13 plus years. And it's funny because it's solid, it's good, but I still, you know, there could be, if I, if I'm not careful, you know, something can hit and all of a sudden I can have visions of my family living in boxes in an alley. 
right? right. Like, like that all of a sudden everything's gone and we're living in boxes and alleys. Oh, no. What's, <laughs> what's wildly ironic about that is we live in Des Moines, Iowa. We have very few alleys. You know, like right. that's a real stretch, right? So, yeah. I, like, it's amazing. It's, it's a credit to my brain on how creative I can yeah, be. It's, when it's it more cornfields out there, right? Right. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. So it's uh, you know children of the corn. Oh boy, we can get you. We got you covered there. Uh, yeah. But it's it's one of those things to be able to say, oh yeah, see that is my brain, and and using unproductive creativity. Now, how am I going to replace that? I'm going to ask a better question and point that thinking uh, in a different direction. And and that's where that's where it is because you know one of the other strategies that oftentimes people that are dealing with worry here is the most common of strategies, but it's also the least useful is the person who just dismissively says, oh, forget about it. Forget about it, right? I mean, it's, it's nice, it's quick, uh, but it's actually a physical impossibility. It's, it's, it's impossible for your brain to intentionally forget about something. What you have to do, if you, if you really do want to shift your thinking, it's about redirecting the thinking as opposed to trying to force yourself to forget something. And one of the best ways to do that is to actually ask questions. Ask questions of yourself um, and redirect that thinking, so. It's awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Mitch, hey, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I think you're a wealth of knowledge. So if anybody if anybody needs uh, needs some help, hire Mitch, buy, buy his book, read his books, um, everything, you know, his, his content is great. So um, certainly check him out. And um, once again, I appreciate having you on. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Nick. And if people actually, I've got a book called Ignite. Um, and it, it walks people through that process of, of getting some clarity around a dream and starting to put a plan in place to actually make it happen, you know, to, to have a, a plan that finally works. And if people are interested in that, they'd even like a free copy. Uh, we actually give the full audio uh, version of the book as well as an action guide uh, away at my site. So people can go to MitchMatthews.com and, and download the whole book, the audio version of the book and the action guide for free because we're all about helping people to, to dream bigger, think better and do more. So thanks for the opportunity to connect with you and your audience. It's an hey. honor. Uh, and thank you for that. Check that out. We're gonna we're gonna write that down on the gratitude list today, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mitch Matthews gave us this book for free. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, thanks, Mitch. Appreciate it. You bet. And take care. Bye. If you want more information to multiply your health and simplify your lifestyle, visit our website at excelpodcast.com. Until next time, have an outstanding day.